Welcome to the Everyday Whiteness podcast series, The Uncomfortable Conversations on Well-Meaning White People. This podcast is primarily for white listeners. It's also a podcast for all listeners who unconsciously operate through a lens of whiteness, regardless of the body that you inhabit. It's not meant to shame you for being white or thinking white, but rather to support you in having more awareness of the impact of your whiteness as a cultural code of conditioning. My name is Guru Nishan. I'm a disruptor of cultural indoctrination and actively support the dismantling of false identity by curating uncomfortable conversations on taboo topics hiding in plain sight. I stand committed to the ongoing dismantling of internalized whiteness within myself and to make visible what is often rendered invisible in business, community, and culture. I want to welcome today's guest. Her name is Opal. She's in her mid-40s. She's a professional woman who identifies as a Black woman and global citizen. She's creative, working as a designer with high-end clientele. However, growing up in a modest home with struggling parents who were artists has helped her remain humble and grounded. In addition to her career, she's a caregiver for her mother, the youngest daughter with three siblings, and newly married with five stepkids and no biological children of her own. Her friends group, her friends group spans across the globe from various regions of the world and in every skin tone, age group, sexual orientation, and varied political beliefs. She considers herself to be spiritual with a belief in a common good and hopes for a global community where respect for our varied cultures, races, religions, and beliefs can be celebrated versus feared. But she is aware that this is merely hopium and an illusion for what could be in another world. Hello. I want to welcome you to the podcast, Opal. I really appreciate you being here. Hi, thanks for having me. <laughs> this is it's, new for me. But. It's, it, it was just a real pleasure. Um, you know, we don't know each other personally, but to have, you know, have a little bit of uh, interaction and then to realize that you kind of feel like a, a friend in a lot of the experiences you've gone through in the world and your worldwide perspective. And I, I just really appreciate you lending your voice to this conversation of everyday whiteness. Well, thank you for having me. I'm uh, looking forward to to sharing my story and just thoughts in general. Yeah, one topic. of the things I like to ask when we first start uh, the podcast is just asking guests, when you hear well-meaning, quote, air quotes, mm -hmm. white people, mm -hmm. you know, where does that, where does that leave and land for you? Like, what does that mean for you? Well, I mean, so I have, like I said in my intro, I've got friends from all over the world, all over the globe. And well-meaning white folks versus white folks I consider just, they're just people who just know. Like to me, there's a difference between someone who's a quote-unquote well-meaning white person versus someone who doesn't even have to be categorized because they're just living that global society, that global neighborly perspective like I am, and we don't necessarily have to separate who we are in that. There's just a common um, knowing that wrong is wrong. Treating someone different is wrong, period. Whereas someone who is quote unquote well-meaning, I don't disparage them in thinking that they're 
worse than someone else. I just feel like they are that category of people that just aren't aware and they haven't grown up with the idea that you're not, um, that you are the same as your neighbor from a different religion or culture. And they have to try harder to say, I'm with you, I'm your ally, I'm going to do what I can to make sure that other people are hearing your story, which I appreciate 100%, um, but may not have had to do that in the past. So they're very well-meaning in trying to step forward and do that now versus being quiet before in the past and not even really knowing how to verbalize their own um, thoughts and beliefs on these topics because it's it's a scary topic. It can, there are so many different areas that can be very deep, but it can be very subtle. Speaking up against your friends who are being hateful or discriminatory can cause a rift in your personal life that I don't even understand has happened to you because you spoke up for me um, unknowingly, you know? So I'm very, I'm very appreciative of the well-meaning people and I'll never, you know, take that away from anybody because we all have to start somewhere. So, mm. yeah, I want to just pause and just say what a distinction that you've, that you've made in terms of the, so the well-meaning and yet there is also this kind of global citizen language that you brought to it that says it's, it's people that recognize the humanity in another, no matter uh -huh. how much you might be different, how much you might not be understood, how much you might look, sound, uh -huh. operate different. And there's, there's an automatic, um, just relationship. Equal, yeah. Relationship yeah. of, of, of equal, uh, humanity of a sense of, of shared humanity, not even uh -huh. equality, but more shared humanity of difference versus Correct. trying to like pull you into sameness. Yes. Correct. And so therefore this well-meaning over here are people that might know that they've grown up around constructs that might not be true, but they don't necessarily know how to not operate them in them. Uh -huh. And so they might've just kind of become aware of like, oh, these things aren't good. And so like the reach out is different. The, the quality yes. of the connection is different because uh -huh. um, it, the way you described it, it felt a little bit more like viscous, like uh -huh. efforted. Yes. And unaware. It's definitely, it's, uh, it's taking that, it's like if you were to be injured and you have to learn how to walk again, it is that taking the, the mm. effort to walk, but in a new light, in a new way, because you realize now that you took advantage or took for granted when you walked before, and then all of a sudden you're injured and all of a sudden you're having to walk again. And every step is a learning process. And you're looking at everyone around you at how they balance their feet and how they move. And you're not paying attention to the size of their feet or if they're male or female or black or white or whatever. You just know that you want to be a part of that population of mobile people. <laughs> yeah, nice analogy. Um, because it's uncomfortable to go through stages of learning, right? Of, yes, of awareness, of, of of unlearning to relearn, and um, uh -huh. yeah. So, so I, I appreciate that, and um, I, meaning the distinction that you've made, and also the, that you're not that there's something to be said for wanting to learn, right? Yes, um, absolutely. And 
there can be a little bit too much space for that if one isn't taking the effort to actually learn some of these things ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I do, I mean, we can kind of get into it a little bit later, but I mean, there, I, I good. Again, I applaud anyone who wants to learn and anyone and everyone who is looking to open their minds and correct the wrongs around them, no matter how minor every correction is a step closer to um, not having to make those corrections again in those people. Um, but then I've also seen people that have gone overboard. <laughs> it's like um, where you think that you know so much that you feel like you relate 100% and you can debate and argue for someone without truly having any experience in that area so there is some like level of sensitivity that still has to happen even amongst those people that i call the global citizen type that they're just aware without even going into this big debate that they cannot speak on certain things because they don't necessarily have that experience but they can tell someone I don't have this experience, but this is what I gather. However, I would encourage you to go into this community and learn more versus being a know-it-all, you know. Go be direct, right. Go get your own direct experience as opposed to like, uh, trying to think we can, like, I could relate to the Black experience because I might have mm. been connected and learned. It doesn't mean I get to then fill in that blank. Instead, Correct. standing for other people is very different than trying to then assimilate and, and have that uh, assimilated voice. Correct. It's just like well any said. man who's a feminist, I applaud them. My husband's a feminist, but he will never say, I'm a feminist. I've got five, you know, four daughters and a wife and my mother and my sisters. And I know exactly what it's like to go through what they're going through. He will Mm. never say that. He will say, I understand that there is a um, problem and that you have a little bit bigger of a hill to to climb and I'm going to support you hundred percent. And here are some examples that I can tell my, my male friends of how to treat women and how not to think of them as different or othered or whatever. So it's the same thing with well-meaning white people on race. Excellent yeah. distinction once again. Well, well, take us back. Like I, I know you have such an interesting story yourself, and I know listeners would love to hear it because it's 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 nuanced, and I think it really um, uh, it lends to this conversation on, uh-huh. on even identity, right? The yes. uh, the difference between ethnicity, heritage, race, identity, uh-huh. and and the complexity of all that. So bring it bring it to us, Opal. So knowing your audience and who you would like to listen to these um, episodes, I want to first start off by just saying. I need for people to have a true understanding that people are people and it does not matter if, you know, of course it doesn't matter what race anyone is, but all black people don't have the same experience, just like all white people don't have the same experience. And we can talk about, you know, all the nuances and and how that um, plays out, but, but I'm a person of analogies because I think it's easier for people to kind of keep it simple in their brain and kind of unlock this idea of what, you know, 
kind of keeping everyone within the same bucket, but then appreciating the differences really is about. So when I think about humanity and people, and then I'll tell you my story, um, I think about people as apples. There are 7,500 variety of apples in the world. Wow. Do you, yeah, do you, when you think about apples, do you think about them as this huge variety? Or do you think, oh, I want a sour apple today, I want a delicious apple today. You know the names of a few, a handful, right? But they're still just apples. The reality is those apples are just as varied in the environment that they're grown in, how they taste, their texture, their size, time of year that they're grown, all of that. Um, people, there's 650 ethnic groups in the world. So way fewer people, ethnicities than apples. Um, but for some reason, we as human beings treat people like we are more varied than all the varieties of apples. So it's the equivalent of taking a bunch of apples, cutting them up, eating them all in one bowl versus a fruit salad where you've got bananas and pears and peaches and apples all in there. But the banana rots first, then it kind of spoils the whole fruit salad. Well, that's how people treat people. Like mm. all of a sudden black people are the banana, you know, versus we're all part of that apple bunch. So I say that and to say that I'm a woman of color. I consider myself a black woman in the United States of America, but I'm also a global citizen. I was born and raised um, in the South, North Florida, but my parents came from Chicago, Southern California, very educated, artists, liberal. Um, they went through the civil rights era in their 20s. They remember life pre-Jim Crow. Um, so they were constantly educating myself and my siblings on our blackness and what that means in the world, how to approach society, um, but also how to just embrace our blackness. I had many questions because growing up in Tallahassee, Florida, I was one of the few mixed looking kids. And for those of you, clearly no one can see me. I'm very fair skin. I have very curly, finish hair. Um, and in Tallahassee, it was very black and white. Mm. And people didn't understand, like, what are you? Was a question I got all the time. And it did not matter if it was from a white person or a black person. It was a constant, almost weekly, what are you? Wow. And that always bothered me because here I am, my mom's telling me you're black, period. If anyone asks you, that's what you are. But then from my black peers, they're pulling at my hair, telling me that I'm not like them. And it was a constant source of confusion. At the same time, my best friend who lived right down the street from me was white. And I was allowed to go knock on her door and she can come out and play with me. But I was never allowed in the house, not until their parents divorced when I was about 10. And then finally I was allowed inside the house. 
So, you know, these are the experiences that I was having, but I never felt comfortable there in that town because I can't say never at that age. I did not feel comfortable there Um, because I heard stories of what my mom and dad, how they grew up in these bigger metropolitan cities and in the North and the West coast and things just sounded so much cooler, you know, (laughs) and here I was in the South with a lot of just close-minded ignorance and confusion because coming from outside of my household, I wasn't, I didn't belong to any category. Um, So fast forward a few years, I finally got to a point before I even got into high school where I asked my parents if I could live in California with my aunt, because I wanted to just kind of get a taste of that California life. And so they agreed, sent me when I was in eighth grade, I lived a semester in San Diego. I was exposed to the Latin cultures and Asian cultures and food and like all these things I'd never experienced before um, in my town, because it again was pretty black and white. Um, And then I also went to New Orleans, right outside New Orleans and spent a summer there with one of my mom's friends. love, love New Orleans. And I, I did not, I forgot to mention that both my parents, since they were artists, we would go to all these art festivals around the world and, um, or around the U.S. And so I was exposed to a lot more than just Tallahassee growing up, but I wanted to actually live. I knew there was a difference between visiting and living. So that's why I was like, let me live in California. Let me live in New Orleans. Um, and then after my dad passed away when I was 15, I decided I was going to be an exchange student and live abroad. And I chose Brazil um, because that was one country my dad had never been to and always wanted to go. Um, Mm -hmm. Mind you, he had lived in Spain for five years. So he would talk about that all the time. But Brazil was one place he always wanted to go. And he told me all about how the state of Bahia was the closest relation to what you would find in the South because that is where slaves were brought in and we have the same history and blah, blah. So I applied to be an exchange student in 11th grade. I went to the state of Bahia as I requested. And it was there that everyone looked like me. Everyone looked just like me. Like people were like, you're American. (laughs) People thought I was lying when I told them I was from America. They're like, no, you're pretending. So here I was going from what are you in the U.S. to you're a liar in Brazil, even though I did not speak hardly any Portuguese. And but everyone looked like me. So I was finally able to find myself in a community where I wasn't um, different where I wasn't quote unquote othered, Mm. no one asked me, what are you? That statement that killed me, not Mm. a single person asked me, what are you? Instead, I learned what shade of brown I was called, (laughs) So, Ah. which is ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. And I learned that, um, you know, I learned about the history in Brazil and how, Yes, they have a very similar history as the U.S. as far as um, slavery, but they were able to, their families weren't separated the way that we were in the U.S. Language and religion and um, culture was not stripped away 
the way that it was here in the U.S. So a lot of people that I talked to had stories and they can tell you what regions and states and tribes that they were from initially and originally. So it was just a very different um, eye-opening experience for me. And it, it, it finally made me feel like I knew where I came from. I knew I wasn't Brazilian, but I understood better my ancestors and the walk that they walked and the various brown that exists in the world. Because while in the U.S. it's you're black or you're white, in Brazil, there was 20 some odd shades of brown that you were literally labeled. Um, So I came home and... I no longer had this sense of other. I was very, very much grounded mm-hmm. in my blackness. Mm. And I embraced that heavily. Can you speak to kind of your early childhood that you said about your, your uh, traveling with your parents as artists and then also that your, your mom was a professor? No? Can you speak to that a little bit? Yes. That set the foundation? Because mm-hmm. that still fit the foundation of your of, of your roots, but it was kind of a different sense of roots that you're explaining right now. Yeah, right. Sure. Um, yeah. So I, I did kind of skip over that part of my, my reality in my life, but, um, so yes, my, both my parents were artists. They were ceramicists. Yes. Um, they were ceramicists. They were well-known Afro-American Raku ceramicists. Um, And so we were constantly traveling around the U.S. doing art festivals to sell their artwork in art galleries for openings. And my parents actually started, um, they were co-founders of the Harambe Festival, which is an African-American art festival in Tallahassee, Florida, that unfortunately no longer exists. But the time was so big that schools would bust the kids from every school to go to the Harambe Festival. And that was the exposure, like the only exposure kids in Tallahassee had to African-American culture and art and music. So I was born and raised in that environment. And my mom was a professor of art um, in humanities. My father was a full-time artist, which led to us being not so comfortable financially. (laughs) Mm -hmm, But, mm -hmm. um, But those struggles never defined me. They did what they could to make sure that we still lived in a home that I went to, even though my mom was a professor at a HBCU at Florida A&M, they sent us to a semi-private school on Florida State's campus. And I was exposed to both Florida A&M's campus every day, practically growing up on the HBCU campus to going to school at Florida State University's private school. So, I had this full exposure to a variety of people and cultures all over the US from the time I was born. Um, we even talked about like when, I remember when AIDS was, uh, the epidemic was huge and I was seven, eight years old, scared, you know, cause the way that the media was making it sound was like, it's this gay disease. And I knew we had gay friends in our family and my parents had to talk to me about not fearing our friends over this disease. And it is absolute BS that this is a gay disease. It's just 
propagated that way. The propaganda of it. You know, to speak to you. Mm -hmm. Yes. Correct. And um, my dad, I remember, I I remember like yesterday, he talked to me at that point. I literally was like eight or nine years old. The fact that I'm even like getting these types of conversations tells me more about the depth of of my intellectual growth as a child but he even reached back to explain syphilis and how that was like put upon the black community and looked at as a black disease even though it was literally like given to us as an experiment like absolutely yeah so um so it it helped me to have more empathy for the gay community. And I remember the first time I went back to the New Orleans Jazz Festival, which we went to every year to sell our work. That was one of our um, highest grossing festivals. Going up to one of our family friends who was with his partner and just hugging him tight and just telling him how much I loved him. And I hope that he's healthy and safe. And I'm sorry that, you know, this was happening and he looked at me like what are you talking about <laughs> I at my at that time in my life at like nine ten years old became the well-meaning gay ally you know <laughs> uh, yes I was just like that well-meaning activist running up to this grown-ass man hugging him around the waist like I hope you're okay <laughs> I hope you're healthy <laughs> Whoa, I love it. He's your like, analogy. what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> so, so excellent, excellent. Great that, um, So then yeah. you coming back to the US, it's like suddenly it's like you you had grown up around so much this and that, such stark, like you had said, black mm-hmm. and white. It's like this yes. school, then this school. And yes. your parents had because of the life they lived and the life they had created and curated you were exposed to a lot and realized there was so much more to explore so here you get to go to Bahia absolutely and you come back and now you're rooted now you no longer feel like it's like where do I belong but like here I am Mm -hmm. yeah there was no more confusion there was no more feeling ashamed of my hair and ashamed of my skin and having to explain to people what I am when someone would approach me with, what are you? Cause that question did not end. Um, it didn't end there at least. I was, I was finally able to even consider dating. You know, I didn't know what side of the spectrum I belonged in. Do I date black? Do I date white? Because honestly, from what I heard, boys had crushes on me, but no one wanted to date me because their parents would kill them. You know, if they were a white guy or the black guys would say, well, I think that you think that you're too good for me because of the way you spoke. And I knew then I did not need to date local boys from Tallahassee. And I ended up dating college guys from Miami or wherever they came to college from, which I don't, you know, I don't say, hey, you know, 17 year old girls should be dating college boys. But at the time that was, that was what felt right to me. So. Um, so I will, I'll just back up a little bit because when coming, I don't know anyone who's ever listened, who's listening, if they've ever lived abroad for a certain amount of time and then came back to the U.S., you have to go through this thing called culture shock. (laughs) And, um, 
I was hit with that really hard because it was my, I was young still, and it was my first experience living abroad, but also living in a country that at the time was truly a third world country. Mm. So coming back to the U.S., I had this idea of what poverty really looked like Mm. and what this stupid notion of race was because that wasn't nearly as big a thing whereas classism was down there. Mm. Um, So it did not help that the first week I was there, there was a Klan rally on the steps of the Capitol in Tallahassee. And I went to observe the, what I called a freaking circus, whereas everyone else went there to protest and be like, this is terrible. And it is, it's absolutely terrible. I don't condone hate in any way, shape or form. Klan rally rallies are stupid. Um, But from the, that point of view, a week after coming back from Brazil, seeing what real trauma, real problems were Mm. to go and see the circus of news people and clans people and protesters and all the rage in everyone's faces, all I could think of was you have no idea how lucky we are. What are we doing? This is so crazy. I I just don't get it. You know, I didn't get it in that moment, but it took some time. I had to, I had to kind of backtrack and think about the history of America versus the history of Brazil. And I couldn't compare and say they're the same because they're not, they're similar histories, but America took a a turn that Brazil did not, and it made a huge difference in how the people deal with one another. And so now here we are a much richer country with a much poorer state of self Mm. versus a much poorer country with a much richer state of self. Yeah. So, yeah. So well said. And, you know, it's so true that like even the culture I come from, a lot of us are white ethnicity and yet grew up with an Indian worldview. And so have had that world perspective, but don't have the nuance of when coming back to the US, how to really deal with what you're pointing out is the stupidity of these race relations in the sense of the propaganda that is real and really historical right? The turn you talk about the U.S. went. Correct. Yes. So it's like, it's not enough to just travel around mm-hmm. the world and get a, a worldview to then come to the U.S. And I hear a lot of like peers of, of kids like uh, that grew up in a similar culture, like, yeah, you know, race isn't real. And it's like, no, you can't say that because just because it's fabricated or it's a social construct, it, is very mean, real. <laughs> it doesn't impact people in very yes. real ways. And you happen to not be one of those people. Um, in very real ways. Yes. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so speak to the nuance of that, because I get what you're saying. You come back from a world view and you realize class, economics, imperialism, mm-hmm. That's the real mm-hmm. root of these things. Mm-hmm. And here in America, we're getting this kind of like mm-hmm. veiled view of just black and white versus the roots of imperialism. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's a much more complex mm-hmm. conversation, yes. but I know you can speak to the nuance of 
of how it's very real. You can't just travel the world and then come back and be like, no, I have a global world. I have a global view now. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, because I did that and I was wrong. (laughs) But you were young. You were a young person. (laughs) I was young, but, and I was, you know, I was just like in my own little, like, thought pattern trust me the few friends I have left from that time period were very annoyed by me <laughs> so, but yeah I mean you're absolutely right that is globally that is the problem however that's not to say that we still don't have a real problem with racism with you know sexism with all these other isms because we will find any way shape and form to call another person culture ethnicity inferior there's this addiction of feeling superior versus more sameness and fighting the same battle um i think you and i have a mutual friend who is constantly on this we're sameness and this is our one and only battle forget the rest it's not true it's easy to say when you're not living the truth of what is actually racism you know and it's easy to say when you're not when you're speaking with the penis versus breast you know that forget that other thing because this is the only thing well that happens to be the while the financial side of it all the classism side of it all is the core that is also in reality the only thing that you're dealing with as a white man versus all the other things so pin in that (laughs) exactly pin there because opal what what, opal what you're getting to here is how so easily if 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 one is in a lower class and still among say uh, an economic lower class white person there are some parallels that one could then start to relate to other people of other ethnicities and races that are also similar class and yet in america there have been specific and mm-hmm. united states of america i should say uh, specific constructs in place that added other layers of separation not just class and so to yes. to say that the only message is the class issue which is a good route but it's not the only tendril of that route <laughs> mm-hmm is, right. is where you're going and, and go a little more there because it's so important. And I feel like a lot of white people can bypass by saying it's the class issue and not just the race issue, you know, and, and both can be true at one time. Yeah. And it's, it's, it makes you feel better to think it's one thing, you know, but it's really not at all. And these struggles should be all of our struggles that we all fight together. But the reality is, they're they're not everyone's struggles so it's harder to get on that bus with other with everyone else like I'm riding that double decker because I am black I'm a female you know all these things whereas someone else is just on that short bus they're male and they're white and that's their struggle bus but we're all blind you know so mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. I you know I I went through in my, my experience as I said before, my parents did not have a lot of money. I was, I was black. I was female in the South. Now I am working for high-end clientele. I've surpassed that um, struggle bus of the financial realm. 
So I'm invited to different parties than I was before, you know. <laughs> I'm in a different circle, at least my invites, but my circle is still very broad. And at my home, it doesn't matter if you're homeless or not. But I do see that other end of a community that I was not invited to before. Whereas I'm still a female in a, as a designer, I work in construction. So that if that tells anyone anything, I have a lot of struggles when it comes to being a female in the construction industry. Um, I am still black, even though I'm in Atlanta, Georgia, it is, it still takes some other type of person. The, the, the company I, I work for, the owner is white male. He gets me into these projects that if I had gone knocking on their door before, I would not have been able to be a part of that. I know that. That's not something that he thinks of it like that. I just, I'm, employ I'm an employee of his, so he doesn't think of it that way at all. But I know for a fact that if I had knocked on this person's $1.5 million home and said, hey, you want to add another hundred, you know, 250000 to this home or whatever, let me do that for you. They would just look at me like, uh, who are you? Can I see your resume? I don't know if I trust, you know? because I had that happen many times before, where in the past, my job was to go as a consultant, knock on people's door and, you know, sell them custom closet systems and literally have the door shut in my face or told, you know, I need to see your resume and business card before you come in the house. Mm. Even though I had eight years experience you know, so there's, wow. there's these little tiny things that is a reality. Um, and it's not something that everyone else has to experience, but, and nor do I wish that on them. Um, but these are regular occurrences, um, even in 2022. Um, I wish that I could say that things have gotten better. And while on the surface it looks better, you know, we, there's no more segregation necessarily, but it's just, it feels the same to me, just different, just different. The conversations are now being held a little bit more publicly than they were. So we're getting to hear and see where people, what people really think and it hurts, you know, um, and there are just other ways of keeping people at bay that you don't want in your life. Um, while I'm working in a very um, high-end environment, I am literally one of the only people of color in our whole industry here. Uh, I mean, that's not to say there aren't others, but I'm one of the few. And I'm, in fact, being invited to join um, the board of an organization. And in the, um, in the conversation that the president of the board had with me, a white male, he came to me and he said, Tanae, how would you like to be nominated to be on the board of this organization? 
And I was like, oh my God, I would be so honored. Are you serious? I've only come to like five or six meetings, not even that many, it had been like four or five. And I was like, you've already noticed me already? There's like 300 people that come to these meetings and they want me to join the board for 2023. I was so excited. And then the very next thing out of his mouth was, yeah, we need more um, variety. And what do you say? Um, variety. Oh no, he said, we need more diverse. He said, we need more diversity. And I think that you fit that bill great. And I was like, oh, okay, thanks. So you wanted someone who looked like me to join the board. That's it. Got it. Thanks. <laughs> you know, that wasn't even really given a, an opportunity to say no. I found out last week that at the next meeting, they're announcing me to be on the board. And I didn't even say I accepted the nomination. I'm just on it. Now, am I going to turn it down? No. Why? Because this organization needs more diversity, 100%. Um, and I'm going to reach out to other people and make sure that they come and they're part of this, this group. We need representation. Do I feel some kind of way about it? Absolutely. You know, I wanted to be invited for my personality, for my uh, professionalism, for my reputation, um, not for the color of my skin. Mm. And that's exactly what it felt like because it literally was said, <laughs> we need more diversity. Yeah. So come on. <laughs> and the ease at which that's said, right? Um, yeah. The normalcy and, and like out of his own mind, he probably has no idea the, the impact that it, of how that lands for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, do I think this guy is, you know, meaning to, to offend me? No. Huh. I think that he actually sees me as a peer and someone that he can talk to naturally because we've had many conversations work-related before. Um, but it, he's just unaware that it's, you know, while well-meaning, also kind of he othered me, you know, without even knowing it. Yeah. And it, and it lends to the conversation of, you know, the, the token, right. The, the, the feeling of what it means when you're like mm -hmm. added to a place, but never actually asked to add value to the place. Like what's your voice, you know, like lend mm -hmm. your voice, lend your perspective, lend your, all the things that create one's value, not just this surface. Oh, and how much we see companies and organizations kind of scramble in this, oh my gosh, we got to get more diversity and, and then change their websites and maybe hopefully change their boards, right? Hopefully change some of these up. Yes. But yes. So I hear what and you're it's saying a, about, It is yes. a proactive move. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is a proactive move, 100% to come up to me and ask and, and to be so comfortable to say that, you know, so loudly. And so like, just matter of fact, I mean, I, I'm glad he wasn't hiding that, you know, that would, that would also not feel great, you know? Um, but there was someone else who's also joining the board and he approached me with the same information, but he did it in a much kinder way, which was, I just want you to know, I was asked to be on this board and he's a white male. And he said, 
Um, I really don't want to be on this board unless we find more diversity because I'm sick and tired of seeing old white men on this board. And he was like, I wanted you to know that that was me saying I, we need to diversify. And I pointed you out as someone that I thought would be a good representation of our industry, someone that people respect, someone that people listen to, everyone knows you, and you can help bring in more diversity to the organization. He said those words, not, mm. we need more diversity, so we're going to nominate you, and then all of a sudden you're on the board. You know, I'm like, I'm more than that. I'm the other things that was told to me. You're someone that people listen to. You're someone that's respected. You're someone that, you know, we know and we pay attention to. So what I want to point out in, in that, in those two examples you just gave, one gives you agency, you know, a sense of your own agency that says, Hey, this is what happened. This is what I'm aware of. This is how you might factor into it. If you so choose to kind of take this on too. Right. And another one is kind of like, Hey, we need you on for, for diversity, you know, and it's so subtle. And the language was definitely great that in the differences, but this, the profundity of the choice that you get to choose how you want to engage and be a part. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's, you know, I, I have found myself in others in like situations in my past where I was that, that token black person in situations all the time because one I again I have a variety of friends I have a large group of non-black friends as well as a large group of black friends but I've been told more times than once that I'm easy to approach and easy to talk to and the reality is I never want anyone to feel uncomfortable with their um their own ignorance that they just don't even know you know, so I, I make it a, a point to listen to anyone's questions, no matter how, um, no matter how they sound, no matter how they come across, no matter how offensive, um, I'm going to listen because I've found that a lot of people are coming at me with questions because they feel secure. And the way that they ask those questions is coming from a place of mimicking what they hear from their parents or their grandparents or their other friends, and they don't even know how to ask the question. They're so out of touch with how offensive it can be. They don't even realize they're being offensive in some of these conversations. But I always kind of find a way to tamper them down and I'll ask them, you know, can you ask that question again, but pretend that I'm asking you, you know, just like simple things like, um, oh, do you, (laughs) this is one everyone can relate to because they've all heard it before. Um, Do you have to wear sunscreen? So (laughs) as a kid going to the pool, there was always, I was putting on sunscreen and I had a white kid approach me and they're like, are you putting on sunscreen? Are you trying to be white? I was like, excuse me? 
<laughs> and they were like, only white people put on sunscreen. You're already tan. You don't need to put on sunscreen. And I was like, okay. So this is how the sun works, <laughs> you know? And I was just like, instead of getting mad, instead of getting like upset, like you're so stupid, blah, blah, blah. I was like, okay, this is how the sun works, you know? Um, and explained all of these things to them. And they're like, oh, okay. Well, I just didn't know. I had no idea that black people could sunburn. And I'm like, yeah. I was like, did you know that you can get ashy? do you wear lotion when you take a shower after you take a shower? And they're like, what do you mean? What's ashy? And I explained to them, it's just dry skin. When you take a shower, it takes out the hydration from your skin and your skin is your biggest organ and you need to hydrate it. Blah, 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 blah. And they're like, Oh, I've never seen ashy. I was like, because you can't see the dry skin as much in your skin, but we all need to do it. It's not a black thing, white thing. It's just taking care of your body period. So it's like little, little things like that. <laughs> that end up not being so little. Um, like, I love your patience and the analogy. Yeah, I, I have to be because. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I have to be patient because there, there are definitely I've learned from my mistakes and blowing up on people who have been just absolutely rude. Um, it gets you nowhere, it gets you into bigger arguments and no one's listening. And um, I mean, sometimes even when you're patient, they still don't listen, you know, as that debate over the little mermaid was just like literally talking to a wall sometimes because I was like, my only argument in this whole debate is why is this even a debate? I don't even get it. You know, Uh, why are we even talking about this? It's so dumb. Um, But they were so passionate in their belief that they wanted to hear what they wanted to hear. And even though I said absolutely nothing that was accused of saying, this person was debating with a woman of color, with a black woman. And so he literally put words in my mouth as if I said these things, these arguments that he was making and it had never happened. And I finally ended it with one day when you can step back and get away from your ego for a moment and read back at what I've written, you'll see that I don't care. <laughs> like, I'm literally questioning why this is even a debate, <laughs> you know? So I don't know, not everyone listens all the time, but it is better to come in with, um, with patience, with um, understanding that I don't know everything, so this other person may not know everything and, and it, there's always a learning experience um, and sensitivity, you know, I don't, I don't want to be hurt, just like I don't want to hurt someone else for them not knowing. And, and I've seen so many times in my adult life, my friends come to me with a question already in tears because they were so nervous to even ask, so nervous to, to feel so ignorant. And um, and I use ignorant in its literal term, which is just not knowing, whereas some people use ignorant as a, like, you're stupid. Like, no, it's, you just right. don't, yeah, you just don't know. So I've had friends come to me in tears, literally, like, I've always wondered X, Y, Z, or, you know, I really have to ask, but I'm so embarrassed. And I don't want to hurt your feelings or whatever, but what does this mean? Or what, you know, and I just sit down and talk. We just talk, you know? And it feels good at the end because they learn something. I learn what people are curious about, you know, 
Um, and it, it helps everybody. I think the more that we have these quote unquote uncomfortable conversations, the more understanding we'll have. And if we walk away with those, with those experiences, with more understanding, but also accepting that we'll never fit in each other's shoes, right. then that that's a beautiful thing. Yeah, that we're not because we're not to meant try to, to be the society of that's all the same. No, we don't want this homogenous world. We don't want everybody to be the same. This whole saying of I don't see color drives me crazy. <laughs> because the reality is when you say you don't see color, it's like don't appreciate our differences, you know? You can absolutely see color. You can absolutely see someone's religion. You can absolutely see someone's sexuality. See those things. I want you to see them so that you can appreciate them instead of um, looking at them at the negative stereotypes. We got to get that out of our head, you know? Yeah. And I want to really highlight that that's really one of the things you just really brought up was the importance of, of understanding that a lot of times people are the questions that you might be asking are just what your your parents told you or what your grandparents told you it's like this little tiny scope into another person's humanity that happens to be black but you don't know if i just come Mm -hmm. up to opal and 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 make a judgment based on my limited exposure to black people I don't get the nuance of her experience. I don't know what she's gone through. I don't know that she attended a, an all white school or an all black school. If she grew up in a black community, if she went around the world, like mm-hmm. I don't know those things unless I come and approach with curiosity and a sense of humanity. And so one very powerful distinction, Opal, that you just made was when somebody asks you a question, especially if that question kind of like, feels a little off like the sunscreen question like you're yeah. using sunscreen you know and it's not, <laughs> you know you pause and you're like i want you to just think about asking that question as if i you know i was asking you how would that feel like mm-hmm. to, to pause and think of any question you might ask are you asking in a way that you would want to receive a question from someone who doesn't know right. you because if it doesn't feel right. good to you, it might not land well for them. Mm-hmm. No matter what culture mm-hmm. of difference, of religion, of sex, whatever it is. It's, and, and so I really appreciate that because it does speak to your patience, but it also flips to offer an understanding that says, this is how you can do it differently because you might meet a Black person who's mm-hmm. not as tolerant at fielding such a mm-hmm. question like that. Because you could have Googled that. Mm-hmm. Do black people get sunburned? You know, but you don't Google it. Instead, you walk up to a black person right. and say, Do you wear sunscreen? You know, it's like it might be well meaning, <laughs> but it, it doesn't feel good. <laughs> it doesn't yeah. feel good. <laughs> yeah. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. But I mean, even with that being said, like we have to remind ourselves, like you're, I would consider you an intellectual. There's people who are pressing play on this podcast that would be elevated in their thinking because they want to listen. They want to learn. But we have to remember we live in a society of very simple-minded people. Mm. That's not to say we're all simple-minded, but so many of us are simple-minded. And so while this is a very deep 
and um, varied topic and there's no cure necessarily for it. I think I approach this as, as, as simple as possible. And that is literally one experience at a time, not lecturing on the history of, and this is, you know, this is how the domino effect of racism has happened from this generation to the next and governments and this, you know, the whole nine, I can do that. And I've done that and I will do it. And I typically have those debates amongst other black folks because we're on the same page with different perspectives, believe it or not. Um, but keeping it simple amongst the public and amongst those who are well-meaning or just straight up ignorant is always the best way to approach those situations. And if people want to learn more and they want to dig, dig deeper, then they know where to find me or to go online or they're a little bit less uncomfortable to approach someone else because I was so open to having a conversation with them. You know, it's these baby steps that can yeah. go a long way. So I, I try and keep it there for the most part. Yeah, well, I really like your language to it and um, and just how you've metabolized your own experiences to um, to ground and root in, in, in your life. Um, I know you have um, so much more you could, could lend to this. Is there any more you want to say before we wrap up in terms of um, really speaking to this topic and well-meaning white people? Well, I mean, again, I just kind of, I don't want people to feel um, uncomfortable. I know it's an uncomfortable topic and conversation. But I do, I, I would encourage everyone to kind of reach out to someone, even if you're not, a, if it's not a friend, if you happen to live in a community that is mostly white, there's groups online, you know, you can even be anonymous. There are so many groups that you can go, there's a, an app called Whisper. It's kind of terrible app, actually, <laughs> it's full of very toxic people, but you can actually once in a while fall into a conversation with someone who's willing to be very open about um, whatever questions you might have if you're feeling embarrassed. Um, and I just want to remind people that, again, every single person, while we may fit into these different categories, we're all very different. And while I grew up the way I did in my household, I have other siblings who grew up in the very same household, and they're very different people with very different thoughts and different ways of expressing themselves. And other than growing up in the same house, you wouldn't know that we're related necessarily if you were to ask us the same question and we had to answer them you know, on our own, like anonymously. So that's how varied we are as people. So let's try and break down these stereotypes and really take the time to get to know your neighbors and, um, and just be fearless about asking those hard questions. Um, you know, and just be more sensitive about how you ask them because they sometimes come across really harsh. And at the end of the day, um, you're, no one's more important or more superior than another. So we just have to get back to the basics of we're human and living in this one country with a very unique um, history that while it's mimicked in other worlds, 
in other nations, it's been, it's unfolded differently. And we have to understand that we literally are living in a bubble. Like there is so much more beyond this. So as, as passionate as we get about our issues, as we should, because we need to fix these issues, get out and experience beyond here. Because otherwise you're gonna get stuck in this bubble of negativity and assumptions and just ignorance. Mm-hmm. That's it. Mm-hmm. We don't wanna do that. Absolutely. I mean, so well said, just you know, really bringing a level of um, curiosity and, and, and sensitivity and, and humanity and, and self-awareness to say that um, the ideas that you've gotten with, about other Black people, other cultures of people, they're very much in the limited views that you've been exposed to. And so when Opal says, get out of your mm-hmm. bubble, right? It's like, get out of the bubble of, of the simple world in which you've been taught to see the world. And um, getting to another country always mm-hmm. helps, right? But even within that, what I loved about the nuance of this conversation is that by the positioning of this podcast, and I'm talking about whiteness in and of itself, it, it doesn't feel good to say as any person, you know, you're more nuanced than just being called a person of whiteness. And just like that, so are black people and so are every other people. Mm-hmm. And this is a part of the point is that when we can start to see that these ideas aren't actually who we are, but they're constructs that we've been taught to view other people and specifically black bodies, And that's quite unique to the history of the United States and how that has been implanted and created propaganda around it. So to deconstruct it while it is uncomfortable and while it might bring up a lot of historical fear that shows up present day, what Opal's saying is we have Mm -hmm. to move through that fear. We've got to lean in and just realize there is so much more here for us. So much more. And, you know, and I'll, probably end it with this, no matter how uncomfortable you might be asking these questions or um, wherever you are in your life, no matter how uncomfortable you are, think about the generations of people who've been uncomfortable walking out the door, period. I literally still to this day, am not fully comfortable in every space that I'm in, but I have to step in and I have to shop, and I have to hang around people. I have to go to these networking events. I have to be a part of this world in my skin, and it's been my entire life, and my parents, and my grandparents, and my ancestors before. Every day, we step into uncomfortable, and every day, we persevere. So find that strength, and know that, A, you're not alone by any means, B, if this is your only level of uncomfort, lucky you, you know, um, <laughs> well use that to your advantage. Yeah. Yeah. So well said. Thank you. You want to intro us your song? I always ask mm-hmm. guests to bring a song and, uh, go ahead and let us know why you chose this one. Um, okay. So, um, I did send a song this one. So I was really big into blues music. Um, my, my play uncle and aunt owned a, a blues joint right outside of Tallahassee, Florida. 
and I was a cocktail waitress. And while my parents listened to jazz and blues a lot when I was growing up, working as a cocktail waitress at this um, blues joint really got me like just into the blues big time. And um, and I I still listen to the blues to this day. I still go to live events. Um, if you ever want to have a separate podcast, I can totally talk to you about my... <laughs> my issues with the blues community and what's happening to this music and the people who love it because that's a whole separate story but anyway randomly uh, (laughs) yeah we need to have a whole nother conversation because i've anyway go ahead (laughs) and i will go on record say i do not mind at all that people of all races love this music what i do mind is the um lack of understanding of where this music came from and the depth of pain to express blues music that is missing in a lot of the music itself. The conversations I hear amongst fans separate from the music that is not at all in line this is my biggest issue, not at all in line with supporting this type of music that they love so much, yet their biggest issue is Black people. Mm. You know, it just doesn't make any sense to me. Mm. So, you know, being one of the, again, walking into (laughs) us, just doesn't connect, doesn't make sense. So I, here I am going to these blues concerts and always, I'm always one of maybe two or three other Black folks in these venues um and i'm like asking the questions number one where are we why have we walked away what is happening Mm. you know and number two where's the soul Mm. like there's a few Mm. artists out there and i'm really good friends with some of these musicians who understand 100 percent, and they bring 100 percent, and their music is amazing which is why i still go out and i still support the music to this day but there's, man, when I tell you some watered down blues out there is not even funny. And the level of fake fans, and I say that in the most honest way, because I don't know any other way to say it, but the level of people who are just like, I'm 100% blues all day, but then they're MAGA hats and everything right. else. It's like, you can't be... <laughs> It's so can't have right. it both ways. So the cognitive dissonance. The anyway, cognitive dissonance. It a hundred percent. One hundred percent. It just it drives me insane. So needless to say, I don't go to as nearly as many uh events as I used to. Um I just had to uh, I had to get that off my off my frustration box um by just not participating as much anymore so that kind of answered the other question is where are we well we stopped going and stopped participating because it was no longer a place for us so with that being said i have a blue song (laughs) um (laughs) and it is one of those things where the lyrics spoke to me because it is all true I'm trying to pull up the lyrics now. Um, I'm not going to read them all, but I think it's important to um, hear because it's one of those things where it's it's like a this this man 
Salman, um, Salman Burke, he is telling us, he's basically preaching to us that none of us are free. Doesn't matter if you're black, white, whatever, none of us. And his lyrics say, well, you better listen, sisters and brothers, because if you do, you can hear. There are voices still calling across the years, meaning there are voices from our past. They're still, still calling across the years. And they're all crying across the ocean. And they're all crying across the land. And they will till, and they will till we all come to understand none of us are free. None of us are free. None of us are free. One, as long as one of us is chained, none of us is free. And that doesn't mean just Black folks. That's everybody. That's right. The lyrics go on and it's beautiful. Um, but the name of the song is None of Us Are Free. And it's by Solomon Burke, a uh, blues and soul musician who died in 2010. Um, and I hope people enjoy it. All right, folks, we're going to listen. As you know, we don't listen to the whole song because of copyright, but you can listen to the Uncomfortable Conversations podcast and on Spotify and take a listen to the whole thing. So here we go. Well, you better listen, my sisters and brothers, because if you do, you can hear there are voices still calling across the years. And they're all crying. And they're crying across the land And they will till we all come to understand None of us are free None of us are free None of us are free One of us are changed None of us are free And they are people Solomon Burke None of us are free be sure to mm-hmm. listen to the whole song on our Uncomfortable Conversations on Everyday Whiteness podcast. Opal, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you for all the gems and for your patience, but also for your worldview and your lens and bringing it back to the basics of humanity and curiosity and kindness. Thank you, Karina Nishan. I really appreciate being here and um, I hope that we can do it again sometime. Absolutely. Well, <laughs> folks, it has been a num- another episode of the Everyday Whiteness podcast. Please remember that dismantling whiteness is an everyday, all-day, lifelong endeavor. It does not end. It's a commitment to think, do, and live better than we've ever been expected to or allowed to before. Dismantling white body supremacy begins inside of you, inside of me, and inside of the collective we in our personal commitment, in our own bodies of culture to grow the white experience beyond assumed supremacy. I invite you to listen, to learn, and to grow beyond the limitations that whiteness has and continues to impose on all of us. If you need support beyond this listening space, you can connect with me at gurunishan.com. And if you'd like to be a guest and share your story, please email me at gn at gurunishan.com. Please also like, subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast with someone that you love. Your listening and sharing support is greatly appreciated. The information presented in this podcast are for general educational purposes only. The views and opinions expressed are solely the views of the individuals involved. By listening, you agree not to use this podcast as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others, including but not limited to patients that you are treating. 
Nothing in this podcast is intended to replace the services of a trained therapist, doctor, or health professional, or otherwise to substitute for professional mental health, medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Guru Nishan LLC and affiliate organizations shall under no circumstances be liable to any listener of the podcast or viewer for any action or inaction on your part as a result of the content you consume on this podcast or for any adverse reaction, including any emotional distress you experience as a result of consuming this podcast.